Grace and peace, you're listening to United We Pray, taking racial struggles to the throne of grace. United We Pray is a ministry devoted to prayer about racial strife, especially between Christians. We want to help Christians think better about race in a way that is biblical and helpful, clear and hopeful. You can learn more about our work at youwepray.com. That's U-W-E-P-R-A-Y.com. We can find articles, old episodes, and more. I'm Austin Suter, one of the co-hosts, joined today by author and friend of the ministry, Alicia Akins. How are you, Alicia? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. We are honored to have you. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, readers of our articles will know Alicia. She's written some great articles for us. As I think back now, I think she is one of the only authors to be featured on every year in review that we've done. At the end of every year, we do sort of a, a favorite articles by staff. And I think you've made the cut every year, Alicia. So thank wow. you for your consistently great work for us. It's, uh, it's such been a an honor. Hey, well, we appreciate it. No, I mean that. <laughs> Good. You have just written a book, Invitations to Abundance, and it's excellent. We are going to be giving copies of it away. And we wanted to have you on to talk about it. So wh- what was the official release date for it? It was March 1st. Who was the publisher on that? Harvest House. They're based in Eugene, Oregon. Well, as I said, we will be pointing people to it in the show notes, and we will be giving some copies of it away. And before we talk about the book itself, I wanted to talk to you about your sort of background and experience in education, because I think all of that informs the particular work and how it came together. So if you don't mind, could you just explain a little bit of your background to the listeners? Sure. So I grew up, uh, that's never a good way to start. (laughs) I grew up a a military kid. So I moved around a bit in my younger years. And then um, I went to college for music education and I didn't have to do much writing there. Most of my assessments and things like that were some kind of performance or something like that. Um, And then after when I was in college, I got really involved with campus ministry and I thought that I would be a missionary forever. And I graduated from Rutgers and headed off to um, China where I lived for three years. My first year, I lived in a large metropolitan city on the coast. My second year, I lived in the Gobi Desert. And my third year, I lived in Qingdao across from South Korea. And I think in general, you know, there's not a ton of black people in China. And so I think I had to, I had a decision to make in terms of my experience there. Um, my white peers uh, got a lot of attention from Chinese people, but I think this might be the one time in my life where I've gotten more <laughs> attention ah, than my white peers. Um, Chinese people were very curious. And I think, um, for a lot of people, they might see that curiosity as rudeness, but I thought, you know, I have the benefit of sort of being an American where I live in a place where I see people from all over the world all the time. Um, but if I saw a purple person walking down the street, how would I feel about them? And I was like, well, I probably would, you know, act, treat them the same. I would treat a purple person the same way that they were treating me. And uh, that's actually I had done some writing about that before that got picked up by the Atlantic and the the title of that article was I was their purple person. But so I spent three years in China committed to ensuring that every Chinese person who met me had the best experience of a black person they could possibly have. (laughs) 
And then um, I think that sort of mentality of like wanting to represent whatever category of people I might fall into well in front of others who might be predisposed to have biases sort of has carried on from my time in China and thinking about like, how can I, how can I um, give this other person a good experience of people like me, um, even if I might find their gaze uncomfortable. (laughs) Um, So I came back from China and actually I had been, I'd been one of the most culturally ignorant and sensitive people before moving there. I actually in college, my, my college boyfriend dumped me for being one of the reasons he gave was that I lacked curiosity about the world. And, um, I, I have to say like at the time he said that it was more or less true. I didn't have, Asia wasn't really on my radar. And when I arrived, I made lots of mistakes, but I quickly learned that I really loved living there. And I loved the, there was something really satisfying about overcoming the discomfort of being different and learning to belong somewhere else. So that was a really valuable part of my experience there. But also I realized that there are a lot of other people who were probably just as ignorant as I had been about the region. And so when I was thinking about what I wanted to do when I came home, I thought I want to do something in an educational capacity where I can teach people about this part of the world. So I came back, I got my master's degree in China studies and a certificate in museum studies. And oh, I should also mention one of the reasons that I originally decided to go to China was because I was interested in Chinese ethnic minorities. Um, That had been sort of like a game changer in my thinking about whether or not I wanted to move there. So fast forward to the end of graduate school, I studied China, I studied museums. A museum position opened up in a Southeast Asian country, Laos, um, that was an ethnology museum about the different ethnic groups in Laos. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is a dream job. It's a museum, it's in Asia. I'd have a teaching capacity, even though I didn't know anything about the country. Within like three weeks of getting offered the job, I moved. Um, and started, and then my boss went on maternity leave. So I was like the working director of the museum for (laughs) months after I got there, which was crazy. But I had a really wonderful, wonderful experience working there. Um, a lot of people don't know about Lao and it was completely different than what I was expecting myself. And again, I found myself having to like face this, like, oh, I had expectations about what these people would be like, and now they're different. So once again, just sort of being in the situation where I'm having to confront my own sort of biases or stereotypes, even about the diversity and uh, makeup of peoples within the um, Asia region. So after... Lao, my story gets, I think, a little bit less interesting. I moved to DC seven years ago, where I've been ever since. About four years ago, I started seminary, which was made possible through um, a friend helping to arrange, help arrange financial aid for me through my church and um, the school. So I'm a, a master's of arts and biblical studies student at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary's DC campus. And I sort of once again, in a way, I'm in a position where I'm a little bit on the fringe, 
I am an African-American woman in a historically conservative, um, fairly white congregation. The churches I had gone to in the States before were either um, Black churches or Asian-American churches, actually. So this is my first sort of experience um, with white church. And in D.C., you get a mix of conservatives and liberals, which when I lived in Seattle and Boston, I didn't know any conservatives. So um, <laughs> it's been interesting. Like I made my first Republican friends <laughs> in DC. In DC. Yeah. It's like I've never had friends like you before. Actually I chose um, when I was choosing a small group at one point, I chose the one that had the most conservative, least the least diverse and most conservative people in the group. I was like, I, I want to be in this group. I want to learn from these people and I want these people to learn from me and being in a group with them is probably, if it does, it's probably the only way that's going to happen. Well, knowing you a little bit and knowing your, your writing and uh, approach to things, that's not entirely surprising, but I do appreciate that about you and appreciate sort of the way you, you write and think as a cultural ambassador. And I think it comes mm. through in your work. Mm -hmm. I wanted to sort of double click on your, your seminary education. I'm also a seminary student at RTS. I've been at the Charlotte campus for, uh, we'll call it five <laughs> years <laughs> between having a baby and, uh, having our financial situation upset by a pandemic. Mm. I haven't been able to graduate yet. I'm down to my last three classes. Oh, nice. But uh, we're getting there. So I wanted to ask about your experience at RTS as as a black woman. And I'm not trying to get you to speak ill of the seminary or, or anything like that. But I'd imagine you're once again finding yourself in the minority. Yeah. So I act, I don't have anything. I don't have anything negative to say about my experience at RTS. And they're not paying me to say that. <laughs> <laughs> but it was interesting I mentioned before that I had a friend who had sort of gone to bat for me. He came up to me one Sunday and was just like, he's an elder at my church and was like, what do you think about going to seminary? And I was like, oh, well, I'm auditing a class this semester. He's like, well, would you want to, would you want to take another class? And I was like, I mean, I guess I'd want to take another class. And this whole time I was thinking, I don't, I can't afford seminary. And then my friend basically came out and was like, well, I've, I've talked to the school because he also goes to RTS, he said he'd talked to the school about me possibly getting a scholarship. And my first thought was, why would RTS want to give a, want to give their money to a woman who's not going to be a pastor and a black and a black woman at that? Like in my mind, it was just like, I, I felt very much the whole way there when I was going to meet with the professor about the financial aid, I, I was feeling very insecure as like, why would they give me like out of all of the people, why would they invest in me? And my friend was like, that's a train of thought I would disembark from immediately. <laughs> but I, there's a sense that I think I carried in my first few years in seminary that like, and I, I don't know if it's necessarily bad, but like, I don't have anything to offer here. I like everybody else is smarter than me. Everybody else came from more academic backgrounds. I can't, like I studied music and, and language. And I mean, I did have a leg up when it came to Hebrew, <laughs> but other than that, I felt like the slowest thinker in the room often. And one of the reasons that I had gone to seminary or one of the things that I had hoped to 
gained from my seminary experience was um, friendships with other women who wanted to go more deeply into the study of the Bible than I was finding at my church. And that has been a challenge because a lot of my classes, there aren't, there aren't a lot of women, but I did actually take a class last semester that was all women. And it was amazing. I was like, this is, this is so great. I love it. There's just women everywhere. And there's been more and more women in my classes as, as I've gone along. But I think there has, there has been a sense, and this sort of relates to the book that I wrote of, and I'm not knocking all the, th- the thousands of years of theology that people have done. I just don't have a mind for my reading comprehension is not very good. Let's just say that I sometimes struggle to um, digest everything that I learn in the required readings. And I remember in the very early in seminary, people would uh, reference theologians whose names sounded feminine and I'd Google them and it turned out they were always a man. And it was just like, ah, oh, bummer. Like, when are we going to read something that's like rich and dense, but, and like, you know, meaty, but like from a woman. Um, and so as I sat down to like write, I thought, I don't necessarily want to write a book about being a Black single Christian woman, but I want to write a book that's informed by those things. So thinking about writing the kind of book that I would like to read, I guess not that the kind of book that I have written would ever be assigned for a class, but um, thinking about how else theology could be done, I think was was an important factor as I was thinking about how I wanted to approach the book. Well, that actually leads into the next thing I was going to ask you about, which is your you know, a, a black woman and a theologian. And for your first book, you, you didn't write anything about race. Do you, did you feel any kind of pressure that that was supposed to be or expected to be your contribution to sort of the public theology? Yeah. So I refused actually, <laughs> this is uh, something that came up often because I used to write about race a lot and I still occasionally do. Like if you go back into the earlier days of my blog as well, I did a lot more writing about it than I have in recent years. I also previously did a lot more writing about being a single woman than I have in recent years. And I did not want my debut as a Christian writer to be based in either one of those things. And so there was a thoughtfulness in terms of selecting a topic and even as far as who should I ask for endorsements, who should I ask to write the forward and things like that to avoid having this book unintentionally seem like it might be a book for women or black people or single people because a black single woman wrote it. So I felt like white uh, male theologians are not expected to write books about their white male experience. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And so I was like, I want to write the same kind of books that they do that are just, you know, about the Bible and um, not one that's tied to my identity. So that was very important to me. Well, I don't know if you listened to our, our first episode that came out this week. I wouldn't expect that you would, but we had Dr. Nate Brooks from RTS Charlotte on. Hmm. And he's doing something really, I think, 
great and overdue, which is that in his reading curriculum, every semester for every class, he has uh, books written by ethnic minorities and books written by women, in addition to whatever else is in the curriculum. And I think what, I mean, as he talks about why he's done that, it's providing a richer theological experience for the readers Mm. that folks from different cultures ask different questions Mm -hmm. and think about things differently. And, and the more perspectives you're able to get, the more well-rounded your understanding is. Mm. And I've really appreciated that in your book, just that you think about these things and we'll get into it in ways that I don't think are happening as much in sort of the, the stuff that's being written today by mostly white folks. And I don't know to what extent your background or any of those individual factors played into it, but what's clear is that you've, you've done something uh, unique in the best way. So I really appreciate mm-hmm. your work and appreciate what you've, what you've done and what it took to get there. So Thanks. absolutely. Let's just go into it here. So you've written this book and could you give people just sort of your elevator pitch of what the book is and what your approach was? Yeah. So Invitations to Abundance is a book that explores the theme of feasting throughout all of the main sections of scripture. You could call it a biblical theology of feasting. And um, the each chapter is set up like an invitation. It starts off with who is being invited. The first third of the of each chapter is the story of the feast, where I sort of walk the reader along what it might have been like to be there. The middle section is the interpretation and application section. Um, And then the final part of each chapter is a liturgical reflection, um, sort of like a prayer that people can use to RSVP, if you will, to the feast. And that liturgy section at the end is not perfunctory. I mean, it is excellent. And for use in personal devotionals, I, I think that was one of my favorite parts of the book. So thank you for including that. Yeah. Um, and the first, oh, six or eight of these feasts that you look at are Old Testament feasts, which for, I think, most New Testament believers are, we have sort of a pretty surface level understanding of them. Would you say that's fair? I think that's absolutely fair. Why do you think that is? Um, I think people are really drawn to imperatives. If I, if I can say that people like to know, what can I do? I think on sort of on the flip side, people want comfort and they want instructions and the new Testament, the way it's structured, I think gives people instructions, um, and, uh, gives people sort of like more, clear, obvious, uh, doctrine, if you will. Um, or I'm making air quotes, which you can't see, but like theology, uh, it's more obvious, you know, and then people really like the Psalms and that's a source of comfort to people. Uh, I think, and it's kind of funny in terms of like historical distance from the present, it's all very old. <laughs> it sounds like silly right. to, to put like that. Um, but for some reason, the New Testament seems closer uh, than the Old Testament. Maybe it's the, you know, abundance of place names that are unfamiliar or names of tribes of people or whole books where there's just like 
long lists of who got what land or who helped with this construction project or, you know, things that seem harder to relate to than a parable or James or any of, you know, the Pauline theology that's presented in the epistles. Um, I think that the Old Testament can be off-putting for a lot of people. And I think that a lot of people aren't sure as well what parts of it are still relevant for today and what parts of it they can sort of, what parts of it have been replaced or um, fulfilled that they are no longer um, required to, you know, like different kinds of purity laws or things like that about eating clean things or, you know, things like that. So, yeah. And I think you hit on something there, which is sort of an impoverished, you know, hermeneutic for looking at, at the old Testament, which is we have lanes of sort of one being of essential importance, like the message of the gospel and the imperatives of the epistles. And then our only downshift from there is almost total unimportance mm, of something mm-hmm. that's been replaced or, you know, a type which has been fulfilled or something like that. And so we look at something like the Feast of Booths and we think, oh, that was for somebody else. Mm, that's not mm-hmm, for me. Mm-hmm. And what I think you've done is show how instructive it is, even if it's not like you're not out here Judaizing, right? You're not saying yeah. that Christians need to put themselves back under the yoke of the law. You're saying, what can we learn from this? Mm-hmm. And that's that's not a question I think most of us ask these days, which is why I just really appreciate this. I'm a total Old Testament junkie. <laughs> like, I really like the Old Testament. I don't dislike the New Testament, but there's something about the Old Testament that I find um, really uh, compelling. Maybe it's the stories or... I don't know. I just have always felt a little more drawn to that. I mean, in grad school, I studied very ancient China too. So maybe I just like things that are really, really old, but. Well, that appreciation for the Old Testament definitely comes through, especially in the first half to three quarters of the book. What was it about sort of the idea of a feast that sort of sparked your attention? So I've been in my current job for about four and a half years. And before that, I was out of work for a year and a half. Um, And that was at a time when it was like, I wasn't the only person in the world who was out of work, but it wasn't a lot of us going through that at one time. I was out of work and my friends' lives continued as normal. And um, it was a really hard time. I had been unemployed twice before. Once when I moved back from China, I had to find a new job and it took a couple of months. And then once when I moved back from Laos uh, and I had to find a new job, that took a couple of months. And um, in terms of my spiritual health during those times, it wasn't good at all. And I really struggled to see God's goodness and provision and faithfulness. And like, you know, I just came back from being a missionary. I was taking, you know, like, why won't you give me a job? <laughs> like, Why would I have this kind of landing after serving you? Right. And so when I lost my prior job, I thought, oh, this is going to be bad. I don't do well unemployed. And um, contrary to my expectation, despite the fact that I was worse off materially, during that period of unemployment and that it extended far beyond either of my prior periods of unemployment, I felt spiritually more alive than I ever had. 
And there is a depth and richness to my experience of God that was sort of unparalleled in my prior experience. And there were two, there had been two months that I couldn't afford to pay rent. And my mom helped me one month and my church helped me another month. And there was one month in particular where I didn't have enough money for food. And I was going around, you know, my house finding change that was like hidden between the bookshelf and the desk and in the couch and stuff like that. And taking it to the dollar store to buy the heaviest box of junk food I could find. And at the end of that month, a friend had me over his house for, it was in November. He had me over his house for Thanksgiving and I had just gotten my unemployment check or deposit right before going to his house. And I'd gone to the grocery store to, you know, buy the thing I was contributing to the meal. And my, I like the security of my card had been uh, jeopardized. And so they wouldn't allow me to purchase the thing. So like someone had stolen my identity and um, they were like, this is the last purchase you can make. But after that, you need to get a new card. (laughs) I was like, okay, well, I'll take this mac and cheese. Thanks. <laughs> I'll go to my friend's house. But at the table um, that afternoon, my friend asked, what makes you rich? And it might seem like a Sunday school answer, but like the thing that kept coming to my mind in that moment where I had nothing was like, the, I felt rich because of God. Um, and so I began to sort of explore during that long season of scarcity what it looked like to still experience the abundant life at the same time. And so um, I didn't always want to write a book, but when the idea was first raised to me, I thought if I write about anything, I'd like to write about knowing what God gives us when it looks like maybe he's not giving us anything, or at least that he's not giving us the things that we want. And so that's sort of why I, I, there are other reasons that like specifically feasts, my friend, that same friend from Thanksgiving asked me if I'd write a blessing for his next Thanksgiving. And so I started exploring the theme of fat and scripture. Cause I happened to be reading through Jeremiah and there was a reference to it. And so that sort of got me on the imagery of food and feasting in the Bible and the connection to Thanksgiving. But um, yeah, that's sort of how the Genesis of, the idea for this book came about. And I, I love how, how you structured the book. It's, it's brilliant in looking at the different feasts and the framework it gave the people of God over time, sort of the way God was priming the pump for mm-hmm. this framework of, you know, regular communion looking mm-hmm. backward and also looking forward to the culmination of the marriage supper of the lamb. And I think the way you tie that together at the end of the book was, was masterful. So thank you for mm-hmm. this. It's great. Thanks. Sister, anything else you would want to say about this book? Who do you, who do you hope reads it? Um, That's an interesting question. So back in, I think it was 2019 when I first started thinking about this book, someone asked me about the um, target audience. And I said, um, anyone old enough to be disillusioned with life. And that was, you know, before the world fell apart, you know, (laughs) I thought, you know, anyone 25 and older who's been, you know, disappointed. And now I'm like, everybody, anybody, um, I would say, I think I have a, a bent toward encouragement in my writing more than, I mean, maybe I also, 
it might be found to be like instructive, but I really try and encourage through my writing. So it, I'd say that I hope someone who's disappointed or someone who can't see God in the immediacy of their circumstances, um, that those are the two groups of people that I think would benefit most from this book. Well, I think the way you've done it and the way you wrote it, I can definitely see its application to those folks you've described. I think it's it's very applicable to believers across experiences and across demographics. So thank you for this work. We'll be giving copies away. Um, I hope it's widely read, very fruitful. And thank you very much for this time. Yeah. We generally close out our podcast and praying for it. Um, do you mind doing that? You can open and I'll close and we can pray for folks who will read this and others who might be in similar theological or, you know, training journeys. Sure. Great. I'd be happy to. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you that we have an audience with you, um, that we can come to you empty-handed, that we do not have to bring sacrifices to be heard, um, that we can come as we are and that you provide grace and mercy for us in our time of need. And we confess that it is easy to forget that you have invited us not to a slog, but to a life of abundance. And we pray that you would help us to and rehearse reminders um, that you have called us to yourself for our good for our flourishing, for our peace, for our rest, for our protection, and not for our harm. Help us to find you when you are hard to find. Um, Help us to love you when it's easy to love so much else. And help us to know when we've lost the way. Help us find our way back to abundance and to your, your wide table and your warm embrace. Father, I also pray for my peers who are receiving theological training across the world, I pray that you would give them not just a hunger for right doctrine, but an increased capacity to love their enemies, to disagree charitably, to defend your church um, with integrity, love, gentleness, and after your example. And I pray that you would raise up through our academic efforts, um, disciples who follow you more closely, both as students and as people who will learn from um, students. And I just ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for Alicia, for the ways you've gifted her, for the ways you have prepared her over the years for this, and we trust future work. Lord, we pray for this book. We pray that it would be widely read, that you would bring good fruit from it, um, that saints would be encouraged to, um, to trust you more, to trust that you have good for us, and that you are more trustworthy than anything else we will find in the world or in ourselves. Help us to look to you always for our needs. Pray for all of our listeners that we would be encouraged by this and um, through the others you have in our lives to trust you and to follow you more closely. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, thank you for listening. We will put links to Alicia's work in our show notes. As always, you can find more about our work at our website, youwepray.com. Grace and peace. I have a weakness.
to God. 